Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a Buddhist-oriented path to recovery from addictions. For more information, please visit us at refugerecovery.org. Okay, it is 5 p.m. on the West Coast. Welcome to the first Thursday offering of Refuge Recovery World Services. I'm Noah Levine. Welcome to everybody. Um, just as a reminder, um, this is not a refuge recovery meeting. Refuge recovery meetings are peer led. This is a offering of world services um, by a teacher where I'll lead a meditation and I'll give a talk and we'll have some time for discussion. Um, and we'll start with a, a sitting meditation. So welcome everybody. Find a way to be that is upright and relaxed. Find your meditation posture and then when you're ready, allow your eyes to be closed and establish mindfulness in the body. It's useful to take some time at the beginning of a meditation to adjust the posture, make sure that you're in a position, a, a posture that feels sustainable, upright, but the body relaxed, releasing any unnecessary tension around the face, the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Feeling the breath as it comes in and out through the nostrils, and as you exhale, softening, releasing, relaxing the trunk of the body, the belly, the shoulders, the throat, the heart center. Becoming mindful, aware of the contact with the seat that you're on, how your hands are resting, Mindful of any sound, my voice coming and going. Sound in the space that you're in, both internal and external sound. Aware of the sense doors of seeing, hearing, smelling and tasting. And present time awareness of thoughts and emotions. What's the mood that is present? Any emotional content here right now? Some form of joy or sorrow? Or perhaps tranquility, equanimity. What's happening in the heart mind right now? Anxious. Tired, dull, just acknowledging your mind state, mood, attitude. And then spending a few minutes together, focusing on the sensations that the breath creates, 
letting the thoughts and feelings and other sense door phenomena be in the background and we direct our awareness, focusing on the sensations of the breath. The Buddha's straightforward but simple teaching, breathing in, know that you're breathing in, breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Some find it useful to note or label in and out with each breath. Can be helpful to track, to stay focused. And likewise, when some experience draws our attention away from the breath, back into thinking or hearing, then we just label that note hearing or the mind is thinking, or rather than getting lost in the content of the thought, come back to the breath. Redirecting our attention over and over to the body breathing.
useful to bring a attitude of friendliness, kindness, self-acceptance, no matter how many times the mind wanders, the attention gets drawn back into thinking, disengaging, coming back to the breath, but returning to the present physical reality, sitting, breathing, with a friendly attitude, with patience, with acceptance. This is the process of meditation. You feel a breath or two, or three or four or several, the mind wanders. We become aware that we're in a plan or a memory, acknowledging that, gently returning to the breath, to the body. I encourage you to put more emphasis on kindness than on concentration. More important to be friendly and kind, accepting of yourself than it is to be really concentrated on the breath. If you're new-ish to this kind of practice, keep coming back to the breath. Keep returning to the intention to be friendly, to be kind, to feel the body sitting here, breathing. But the Buddha's 
encouragement is to expand from awareness of the breath, become more inclusive of our whole body. This body that is made up of the four elements of water and heat, air and earth, carbon, Becoming aware that this body has so many parts, the skin, the flesh, the bones, all of the organs, the hair, the nails, the teeth. Many factors, many parts of the body. And this nervous system that's part of the body that perceives feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensations. Bringing mindfulness, non-judgmental, kind awareness to what feels pleasant in this moment. How does the breath feel as it comes and goes? How do your hands feel resting on your lap, resting in your legs? And is there anything painful or unpleasant about this moment right now? Painful emotions or thoughts, sensations. Perhaps the sound of my voice is annoying you. You find it unpleasant. Checking in on your own perception of what's happening and how it feels. second foundation of mindfulness of our practice. What's happening and how does it feel? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral at all of the sense doors, at all of the parts of the body, and including the heart and mind, our emotions, some so wonderfully pleasant, some so horribly painful, our thoughts, some pleasant memories, pleasant fantasies, pleasant hopes, dreams, some quite unpleasant memories, perhaps even traumatic wounds, regrets, Unpleasant worries, fears, resentments that we're holding to. Core part of our practice is beginning to identify the feeling tone of these thoughts, these emotions and sensations. It's from here that we can learn 
more tolerance for the unpleasant, more compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. It's from this second foundation that we can learn non-attached appreciation, learning the appropriate way to relate to the impermanent nature of pleasure is to let go. Arising, passing, non-clinging. including the mind of the third foundation, rather than ignoring it, allowing the thoughts to come and go. Bringing interest. What's your mind up to? What's it thinking about? Planning, fantasizing, Worrying, resenting. And perhaps the mind becomes tranquil at times, quiets down, becomes calm, resting, spacious, open.
When you're ready, allowing your eyes to open, bringing attention back to the space you're in, becoming mindful of seeing and moving and being present with this virtual Sangha together. The topic tonight is um, about the five precepts, action and engagement, the fourth factor of the Eightfold Path of Refuge Recovery. Um, if you missed the first three, they are recorded. Um, I do, we do record these for the podcast YouTube channel, so you can go back and listen to the ones about understanding and intention and um, communication. And tonight we're on action. And remember, all of this is in the context of the Buddha's teaching of if you would like to be free from suffering, if you would like to be free from the suffering of addiction, and all of the rest of suffering that we experience as humans that doesn't have anything to do with addiction, just being human, <laughs> you know, refuge recovery, we're doing a, a really, I think, pretty radical thing where we're saying like, hey, we can use this path, these teachings of these ancient teachings of the Buddha, not only to um, get free from addiction and, and break the, the cycle of being in active addiction, but we can take it all the way to actual happiness, actual freedom, actual sense of well-being, not just, I've so, I don't think I've said this on here for quite a while, but I'm, I'm struck by um, at least at least early, you know, kind of Western psychology and early psychologists, kind of the, the analysts, psychoanalysts, they said, you know, we think that the best that psychology can do is transform neurotic suffering into ordinary suffering. And that like, if you have a really good therapist and analyst, you know, they can help you not be in the neurotic suffering and you can just be a normal person who suffers like everyone else. And um, you know, like in the 12 steps, you know, in, in, the, in AA, you know, there's that line, you know, that if you kind of work this program, you know, the 12 steps, you'll become a, a, a worker amongst worker. Uh, you know, and it's this sort of promise that says, like, you won't suffer from the, the neurotic alcoholism, and you'll just become like everyone else, just a, a miserable fuck like everyone else at work. <laughs> you'll be sober, but you won't be, right? And then, But Buddhism has this really kind of tall bar that says, hey, if you practice these Four Noble Truths and follow this Eightfold Path and live it and embody it, you won't have neurotic suffering, you won't have the ordinary suffering of humanity, you will free yourself, you will develop enough wisdom to behave and to uh, live uh, in a way where you're not creating suffering 
around pleasure like everyone is. You're not creating suffering around pain like everyone is because you develop enough wisdom, enough compassion, enough non-attachment to see clearly and respond wisely. So the Buddha says, hey, if you want that, if you want that kind of freedom, this eightfold path is the prescription. Here's your, right, here's your path. Here's your prescription. And in this factor, this fourth factor, uh, the teaching is, the perspective is, the, the practice is uh, understanding karma, cause and effect, and understanding that when we behave in ways that are unskillful, we create negative karma for ourselves when we kill, when we lie, when we steal, when we um, are unskillful with our what's called sexual misconduct, when we're unskillful in our relationships and we cause harm there. We create negative karma for ourselves, right? So there's just these four areas of um, looking at the karma we create with our actions. Now there's five precepts, right? I said four areas, but it's about violence, you know, harming, killing, or any form of uh, intentional violence or harm. And it's about honesty and, and all of the levels of honesty that, you know, kind of in our communication and our, you know, last week, we, last month, we talked about communication and, you know, wise speech, not lying. And it's about not, you know, also honesty around not taking that which is not offered, not freely offered, not earned, not, you know, not due to us. and uh being quite you know the harm that we can cause in our relationships when we're not careful when we're not skillful when we're not honest when we're not in integrity now the fifth precept is about not using any recreational intoxicants drugs alcohol and the fifth precept is in support of the first four and the Buddha says, you want to be mindful, of course, don't put anything into your system that's going to uh, block mindfulness, that's going to, uh, you know, create a false sense of elation or fog the, you know, ability to see clearly. So, so you know, and it's, it's an interesting conversation for us in recovery from addiction, because almost all of us uh, are practicing abstinence from drugs and alcohol out of necessity because we're addicts <laughs> and we can't, you know, find balance with that. But this is the ancient teaching of the Buddha. He says anybody that's interested in true awakening, really being happy and ending suffering in their life, needs to abstain from recreational drugs and alcohol because in order to be free, we have to be mindful and you can't be mindful and buzzed at the same time. When you are buzzed, it's blocking your mindfulness. <laughs> and so that whole time that you're buzzed, you're not able to be mindful. You're, you're saying, I'm gonna take a vacation from mindfulness with my glass of wine tonight. I'm gonna take a vacation from being aware with my weed or my psychedelics or my whatever it is, I'm going to block my ability to see clearly intentionally, recreationally. Not an issue for most of us. 
Now in refuge recovery, we do find um, some of the process addiction people who um, it is an issue for, because they're like, hey, I'm here because I'm a gambling addict or a sex addict or a, a food addict, but alcohol or other drugs are not the issue for me. Um, and I, I, you know, when I've heard this many times from people, they say, I like refuge, I like the mindfulness, I like the Buddhist-based recovery program, but I don't like that you're saying, encouraging me to um, be completely sober, completely abstinent from, you know, things that, you know, the glass of wine or whatever it is. And I have been kind of personally attacked some of like, why are you telling us that we can't drink? <laughs> and, um, you know, my response is, I didn't make up Buddhism. All I did was say, hey, let's use Buddhism to recover. Let's use Buddhism as a path to uh, support each other and to train our minds. And, and this is a core part of the Buddha's teachings. And so uh, what, I, what I am not able to do or would not be comfortable with doing of saying like, well, let's set that part of Buddhism aside. This is a core part of what the Buddha taught. He said, you wanna get free, it's gonna take a lot of mindfulness and a lot of renunciation. And in order to be mindful, you need to not be high. You need to not be intoxicated. You need to not be clouding your mind with intoxicating substances, even buzz. The other aspect of that fifth precept of, of you know, sobriety is that, uh, and we've all seen this, remember when you're in active addiction, maybe you were a somewhat ethical person until you got drunk. <laughs> You know, maybe you were a somewhat, you know, you know kind of nonviolent person until you were loaded. And then all of a sudden, you know, when we're intoxicated, killing, lying, stealing, sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with is more likely when you are under the influence. And so that sobriety in support of renunciation, in, in support of so that I'm more careful with what I say, what I do who I flirt with, all of that um, in support of the ethics and, and out of concern for one's own karma. I don't wanna create any more negative karma. I wanna create as much positive karma as I can. And so I'm going to take this practice of nonviolence, of not killing. I'm gonna take on this practice of honesty, of not lying or stealing. And I'm gonna take on this practice of uh, relating to my sexual feelings as natural and beautiful and, you know, normal, no, no judgment, but also with awareness that like lust and the clinging that happens and the jealousy that happens and the, creates so much suffering for us. And so bringing mindfulness, bringing awareness and bringing renunciation to uh, how we behave in our intimate relationship, who we flirt with, who we seduce, who we're seduced by, all of that stuff, uh, making sure that it's consenting single adults that are, you know, volitionally, appropriately engaging in the relationship. 
engaging um, with the world, you know, so we can flip these from not killing to um, even protecting life. Uh, that out of compassion. Um, you know, the difference between when there's like the spider in your bathtub and, you know, you could be like, well, I'm not going to kill it. But you could also, you know, become one of those people who goes and gets the glass and gets the piece of paper and puts the glass over the spider and, and gets it and takes it outside and protects its life rather than like, I'm just going to let it alone and, you know, let it wash down the drain next time the shower gets turned on or whatever. Um, of actually going to a place of not just renunciation of violence, but of, of compassionate engagement. Not just not lying, but actually um, speaking truth, uh, sharing, you know, being honest about our suffering, about, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're quite good about this in recovery where we share with each other and we say, like, I'll tell you about, you know, the suffering that addiction created in my life, and I'm going to share that with you, and hopefully someone will benefit from the way that we are honest and uh, not just only not lying, but sharing our truths with each other. Um, not just not stealing, but engaging in life uh, as a practice of generosity. I'm saying like, uh, and I don't know how many of you were thieves. Uh, I was, I was a thief as a young person. And, um, and so, you know, it's a, when I, at some point I stopped stealing. But not just not stealing, actually giving, you know, that emphasis on generosity, that emphasis on being of service, on, of using our life's energy to benefit each other, others, to help each other, rather than always taking. And there's an interesting, I think, perspective on stealing. It's necessary when we, you know, need help to ask for help and to receive. But also there's, we can look at, um, am I stealing attention that's not freely offered? How much, you know, this is, I feel like this is tricky to talk about, but I, I think it's important for all of us to, re, to look at, of uh, how much space am I taking up? Um, I think I, I, on Zoom, it's quite interesting because you, you ever been in the kind of Zoom rooms, the parking lot time, and only one person can talk at a time. And it always seems to be the same person talking. <laughs> and they're sort of taking up all of the time. Or maybe that's, you know, maybe it's me. Or, you know, or am I the person who's kind of stealing the attention in that sort of self-centeredness, not really attuned to, hey, there's 50 people in here that might want to have something to say, but I'm always talking. And I'm always taking the attention. And I'm not really sharing the floor. I'm not really... So when we're thinking about stealing, not only material things, but also ener the, the energy vampires. I don't wanna to go too hard on that because also we need each other. And there is absolutely a time for you to take up the space and ask for help and allow people to help you. So, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people in recovery also are, are hesitant and are happy to be quiet. Um, 
you know, here's a, a, an interesting reflection for all of us. Uh, at this point in your recovery, is it more comfortable for you to give or receive? Because there can be something that happens where I feel like most addicts come in pretty selfish and self-centered. And then we put all this emphasis on generosity and giving and giving, and it becomes easier to give. And then at some point, a lot of people will admit, oh, it's quite hard to receive. I'm good at giving. I'm happy to be of service, but it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to receive um, from others. So just kind of looking at that around kind of subtle investigation around engaging with honesty and renunciation, not just materially, but energetically, emotionally. Buddhism has uh, is a very kind of very liberal around sexuality. And I love that it's part of our path, right? The Buddha is, even though the Buddha is a celibate, he's saying, you want to get free from all forms of suffering? And this is really important for addicts because so many addicts find that they went from the drugs and the alcohol uh, to sex or even from, a, you know, or to food or, or from a food addiction to sex. Once you kind of, you know, sober up, uh, practicing that fifth precept, looking at like, oh, well, sex is so pleasant and I like the attention and uh, it feels so good to flirt or to, you know, get that attention or to, you know, masturbate or to, and so the Buddha is quite open about it. He says like, look, if you're not going to be celibate and you're going to make that choice to, is it just don't lie, don't cheat, don't sleep with people who are already committed, you know, uh, and don't, you know, like, don't create that karma for yourself. And this feels like a whole nother topic that maybe I, I think I've talked about before on the first Thursday, but sexuality, in some level, I, I think it's a choice for us to say, I'm, I, I like intimacy and relationships enough that I'm going to choose to suffer in some in this realm of my life. One of the reasons why Buddhist monastics are celibate is because it's so hard to be in intimate sexual relationships without any clinging. I don't even know if it's possible. You think it's possible? I think it's possible to be in love without any attachment, <laughs> to be in intimacy without any attachment, right? The Buddha was like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to be celibate. I'm going to, you know, Sounds really, really difficult. So when we do enter into relationships, we are going to suffer some. So it's not about like, we're, you know, and I think it's important for us to say, I'm choosing that because I'm going to get attached and attachment creates suffering, or I'm going to get aversive and, you know, creates suffering. I'm not going to get my way all of the time. Going to probably take it personally, take their moods personally, all of those things that we do. So misconduct from a Buddhist perspective is just cheating or any kind of non-consensual, uh, unethical behavior. But consenting adults is not misconduct. Masturbation is not misconduct. There's no heteronormative, 
monogamous teachings in Buddhism. It's um, whatever, whatever you, whatever you love and bring mindfulness to it. Make it part of your spiritual life, part of your mindfulness practice. And do it sober, all of it sober. I'll end and open for discussion. Um, but I remember when I was a, a young man in early recovery and, um, you know, just kind of trying to figure out who I was and my kind of sexuality and just out of juvenile hall and in AA meetings. And, and I remember there was this little, little old white haired old lady in this AA meeting that I would go to. And I remember she would often share when it was her turn to share. Um, she would say, you know, and then I got sober and I discovered sober sex with the lights on. <laughs> and it was, and I just remember being like this 19 year old kid being like, wow, that old lady still fucks. <laughs> and, um, and that she was talking about like the joy of sober sexuality and, um, and that there is joy in it. You know, when we um, are wise and skillful and careful uh, and appropriate with, with the energy around it. So I'll open it up. Five precepts, renunciation, um, out of concern for our karma, out of a commitment to not car cause harm to others as a central part of our path of refuge recovery, uh, renouncing killing, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, and all forms of recreational intoxication. What are your thoughts? We've got about 15 minutes for discussion. If you'd like to ask a question or you can raise your hand in the reactions tab. Christian, go ahead. And if you wouldn't mind putting your camera on, but you don't have to. Um, I actually, uh, and I'm unable to um, activate my camera. That's okay. Um, but uh, my question is uh, about the first precept and and the uh, the second one. The first one, refrain from killing. What is the Buddhist uh, viewpoint on like euthanasia or killing for mercy and then the second question is kind of related what is the buddhist viewpoint on stealing like saying a poor person stealing a loaf of bread so they can feed their family um the uh, you know traditional buddhist viewpoint on both of those is to um abstain from from both back activities all forms of killing including uh euthanasia and um you know to allow uh because euthanasia is based on the idea that it's compassionate for people to not be in pain buddhism um you know and the, the buddhist teaching was actually being in pain uh, is okay and uh, we can we can develop compassion for pain and we don't need to avoid pain actually so much of what we're doing is learning to to be with it and uh, so his teaching was allow people to be in the pain and to work through it and that there's also something about uh, being in pain of burning off karma 
and that if we kill ourselves in order to, or somebody, you know, kill someone else, euthanize someone or even an animal in order for them not to not be in pain, uh, it's sort of blocking their ability to kind of work through the karma of their lifetime and allow them to kind of go out in a natural uh, process. Now, I know that this is really controversial and pet owners and so many of us, including myself, have euthanized a pet in the past. And so we don't want to use this philosophy you know, to um, argue with it too much or to say, oh, I have to believe that or to you know, say like, oh, well, because I don't agree with that, I can't practice the rest of it. The teaching is don't kill anyone ever <laughs> for any reason. That's the teaching. Um, but you get to find your own way with it. Right. Like, and, and if, if euthanizing your pets or or even humans, a kind of assisted suicide is uh, something that you believe in, you get to uh, do that. And then maybe there's some karma in it. Maybe not. But since you're asking me, the early Buddhist teaching is don't do it. Don't kill anybody for any reason ever. Total non killing, <laughs> including animals. Um, and also don't steal, you know, like even though you're poor don't steal from the rich person find a way to feed yourself if possible make yourself available for some generous person to give to you rather than stealing um, is is the teaching excellent thank you welcome there was a hand and then you went away did you change your mind or did you um did i answer it i forget what the name was it was because <laughs> I was like, maybe this isn't this isn't on topic. <laughs> but you had you were speaking about, you know, sobriety and um, even though the topic is sort of, you know, stealing. Um, and my curiosity is what is your personal opinion about the use of psychedelics as a healing modality? Um a tricky question it is i mean i know what buddhism like a strict buddhist perspective would say but well here's here's the um problem i think a strict buddhist perspective would say uh, medicine is okay mm -hmm. right um the, you know the buddha was not against medicine and there was all kinds of you know ayurvedic medical treatments in the Buddha's time. And uh, the precept is 100% against recreational use right. of, of uh, right. And then there's all of this stuff that we call medicine, you know, like cocaine is medicine, you know, opiates are medicine. <laughs> uh, there's all of this medicine that, you know, is legal in certain, you know, like they use cocaine in surgeries, use opiates for pain management, right? There's all of these so but also many of us became addicted to these medicines and so uh you know we did this statement last year or the year before about you know psychedelics and uh refuge recovery that uh and it looks like psychedelics are probably going to be legalized right ketamine's already legalized for treatment of of certain things legal like where i am mm -hmm. it seems like other psychedelics are probably going to be legalized so I know you asked my opinion, but I, I have to kind of lean back and say, you know, the, the view of refuge recovery is we're not medical professionals and we're not going to um, kind of 
put out controversial statements about you know illegal uh, medicinal treatments. Um, and um, so at this point, you know, the, the view of, of refuge recovery is uh, to not use things that aren't legally prescribed. Um, and, Very safe. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we'll see, you know, I, I do, I, I think that within the next few years, we're going to be in a situation where things are legally prescribed. And then it always is going to come back. I mean, psychedelics are legally prescribed. And then it's going to come back to that honest assessment of is this medicinal or is this a little bit recreational? Is it in service or is it not? Well, yeah. you know, for me, the perspective of taking the perspective of, you know, is this is this legal circumvents the whole, you know, tribal historical value and saying, well, I'm actually going to put my value value into a Western concept, which is what's fucking us up, quite frankly, right? Yes. Hyper individualism, the patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. And you know, so yeah. personally, I'm, I'm with you on a lot of those levels. Um, and it just as a program, we have to kind of come totally. back. And, and as Buddhists, we have to come back to you know, abstinence from, you know, anything that's, that's recreational. Harmful. And then, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, I, I think um, that it's quite a slippery slope to be using things that um, are pretty uh, intoxicating and, you know, kind of, uh, um, and, you know, sometimes people need it. Sometimes, you know, like we need antidepressants or we need anti-anxiety meds or we need, you know, these things. And so, you know, I'm not against people taking the meds that help them be more mindful and more present and more able to function. Um, but also, I mean, I, and I'm also one of those people that like, I love psychedelics. I used to eat acid all of the time. Like, you know, I know everybody's like into micro dosing. I was really into my macro dosing. Like, you know, all of the time, like, you know, before, you know, as a teenager, I ate hundreds and hundreds of hits of, of LSD and probably, you know, pounds of, of psilocybin. Like, I love that shit. So to me, it's scary to be like, oh, take a little bit of mm -hmm. this drug that you love. You know, it would be a little bit like saying, hey, you're an alcoholic, but we figured out that alcohol is actually a really good treatment. So just drink a little bit of alcohol every day. You're like, what? the? I can't drink a little. I'm an alcohol. I can't drink a little bit of alcohol. You want me to take a little bit of psychedelics? I can't do that because I fucking love psychedelics. That shit's well, and I think candy. that it's so much about that personal thing then because yeah. Yeah. You know, my addictions are more process addictions, right? I can't eat sugar because the more sugar I eat, the more I will want. Yeah. I can't watch, you know, series of TVs because I will binge watch. But alcohol, I'm fine. Right. Psychedelics for me are never, you know, recreational. They're always done in spiritual context. They're always done in a healing context. And so, and so for me, I have a different orientation to them. Right. And that's where it's tricky. And that's why kind of like as a program or even as a teacher totally to have one view for everyone, it's not going right. to for everyone, but we can just come back to like, Hey, the Buddha said not for recreational use. Right. And I, and I'm aware there's people using, you know, plant 
psychedelic medicines in a sacred or medicinal way and it's not recreational. Thanks. Welcome. John, go ahead. Sorry about that. Actually, you answered my question uh, when you answered Sabrina's question. I'm, I'm currently in treatment um, and I run a meeting and that is the biggest question that is asked of me by people who are here for mental health is what is the position on, you know, the psychedelics and everything. So I, I want to thank you for that. It was, that was, you know, very well said and answered a lot of the questions I have so I can at least explain the position to other people. It's, it is very big. I mean, ketamine and a lot of the psychedelics right now are being prescribed or, you know, being used by people with process addictions and everything. So um, I think that will give some relief to some people who really are finding the Buddhist way, um, you know, very helpful for them. I would point people more towards um, all are welcome. Right, like that's really the, 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 you know, all are welcome here. You're welcome, you know, even if you're not completely abstinent yet, you're welcome. Uh, even if you're, you know, doing, you know, uh, psychedelics that aren't, you know, legal on a national scale yet or, or whatever, you're still welcome here. And you'll, each person has to find their own way with some of the teachings. Now, there is one place where we do say, um, you know, uh, in order to hold a service position, you can't be using anything that would be considered recreational. And because psychedelics other than ketamine aren't legal yet, we're going to still classify that as recreational until they become legalized. Once they become legalized, then we will no longer be able to, you know, we won't have a, a view that says, hey, you can't take this legal prescribed thing. We're going to think it's recreational. Uh, but until then, we need to land on the other side because it's still a little iffy in a lot of places on who's prescribing uh, and, and all of that stuff. Hey, can I just pop in and say one thing that I think you said that was really, really critical was, was the slippery slope and knowing what your slippery slope is, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You give me a little bit of psychedelics, I'm going to be tripping balls every day. <laughs> so I live in Oregon where psilocybin is legal. Yeah. Um, and it is being done in very controlled environments. You have to go through a um, year-long program to be um, to be the person that sits in the room. You know, they have to have a defibrillator. Um, it's a very controlled environment. And you know, just keeping in mind that when I ask my doctor if I could microdose or if I could go to the psilocybin center, they said, "Well, with your um, blood." with your heart medication you're going to have a heart attack most likely and so you know that is one of the things is they screen and then i also just have to say that our that the western desire for ayahuasca is destroying cultures and destroying the trees um traditionally only the shaman would have taken ayahuasca and the other people would not have and um, you know, there's whole communities. There was a Westerner that killed 
a um, a shaman in in Belize, and so kind of thinking about that, you know, it is traditional, but it was traditional in a very different way. Um, I, I, you know, I got to add that, but um, we're also seeing some really weird stuff. You know, the pilot, there was a pilot that tried to take that. That Alaska Airlines pilot, he was not flying, he was not, he was just a passenger, but he had taken so much that he flipped out and tried to open the doors to the plane and like tried to get, in the, he just completely flipped out. So something to keep in mind. And thank you all very much. Today is my two year sober anniversary. And I couldn't have done it without you all. Congratulations, G, on two years. Um, here's, uh, here's the last thing. I'll let Amy say something and then we'll talk about Donna, but um, I know this is a radical stance and I know that I have my own kind of bias and, and maybe some blind spots around this, but my, my primary view is that actually the Dharma will heal just about everything that needs to be healed and that we can meditate our way into um, good mental health and wisdom and compassion. And, you know, all of the studies say that like mindfulness works just as good, if not better than, um, uh, you know, psychotropic medications for depression. And so uh, we live in a culture of a, like quick fix and like let's prescribe something rather than give someone a technique to heal. And Buddhism is a technique to heal. And I do think that actually most people uh, who will you know, take a, a long-term meditation practice will heal and don't need you know, uh, you know, the kind of psychedelic microdosing kind of things, but that there's a lot of people that will be quick to say like, hey, here's a quick fix, take this, it will make you feel better, uh, rather than here's a slow road to healing, meditate every day, practice renunciation, get engaged with a community of people that you will care about and will care about you, and to actually do this abstinence-based recovery process. Um, now, I know that's, I have my own sort of bias there. Um, and I'm sure that there's some people that, that need meds in a way that, you know, no matter how much they meditate, you know, it's not gonna work for them. So, uh, but I think that there are a very small percentage of people. And I think that we live in a culture that wants to medicate everyone, including on these sort of alternative, sacred plant medicines <laughs> so uh we can be sober and we can get free is is my message and i think that's true for most people um i'll end with amy um are you, did you want to talk about your your pledge oh i forgot about that um yeah i will um donate 500 bucks tonight if the Sangha can pull together and match it. So what she's talking about, like, so Refuge Recovery uh, is a nonprofit. We are, you know, supported 100% by the donations of people who attend. Uh, this is an offering of world services. Obviously, I don't charge for this. This is offered to you freely. There is an encouragement when you attend meetings to make at least a $5 donation when you attend meetings, uh, the Donna, you know, donation-based process. Um, 
Refuge Recovery World Services is pretty broke. We're not bringing in, the meetings aren't don donating much. We're not bringing in enough. Um, I was the, I've, I am the executive director. I stopped taking a salary about four or five months ago because there's just no money to pay me to work, you know, kind of full-time as the director of Refuge Recovery. So I'm doing it for free. We need to raise money. We need to be able to pay employees. We need to be, you know, we have one assistant, you know, we have one executive director. We're a, a national program. There's hundreds of meetings. We need the support in order to support Refuge. The, the nonprofit needs the support. So it's also part of my duty to do some fundraising. So Amy generously said, hey, I'll don't, if we can get matching funds, I'll donate um, $500 tonight, you know, to kind of start the year fundraising. Uh, and so what I wanna ask for is if, um, who else wants to donate to match that 500? And I'll start high. Is there anybody, uh, and if you can donate, raise your hand to acknowledge, I will do that. And then you, so, but I'm gonna start high before you raise your hand, Mark. Um, uh, who, is there anybody that wants to donate $100 towards this 500 matching? Can yes. Do 100. Okay, so I see a couple. Refuge Recovery is freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation to support us, you may do so by following the link in the episode notes. We appreciate your generosity.